Hi, and welcome once again to the Ethics Lab podcast. We are in season two, episode four, and we are here with Dr. Alan Hazlitt. Alan, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you? I am pretty good. How are you doing, Greg? I'm doing fine. It's a wonderful, snowy, cold day in November. It could be a little bit warmer, perhaps, but uh, we're happy to be talking to Alan here and looking for a, a rich discussion on intellectual virtues. So before we pitch you a question, uh, Alan, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work you're doing? I, uh, I'm a professor at Washington University in St. Louis, and I've traveled, worked in a whole bunch of different places and traveled around, around the world. The, the stuff I'm working on right now, I'm working on a book about desire, and I'm working on a book about authenticity, and I'm working on a paper for, uh, for the volume that you guys are putting out. So you've got me, you're, you're number one on my list. Well, we like to hear that. And and as Alan is alluding to, he was a part of our uh, Populism and Intellectual Virtues workshop this fall. And we're looking forward to seeing that volume come together. And as we've probably said, it was a great workshop and really had some great participants like Alan. So uh, I'm going to turn it over to Greg and we're going to jump right in and get to some nitty gritty of, of our intellectual discourse. Thanks, George. So our work... In the workshop, so part of it involved, uh, when you're here, talk about intellectual virtues. This is work you've reflected on a little bit. So I was just wondering if it kind of begin for our listeners, you could just talk a little bit about how you see approaching intellectual virtues from the perspective of philosophy and how you became in, in that topic amongst the areas of your research. I mean, I think the interesting thing about the philosophical discussion of intellectual virtue is that you, you get a, a, a lot of different ways of understanding what that term intellectual virtue even means. So that, that, that's kind of how I got interested in the, the area was sort of wondering what people were talking about when they talked about the intellectual virtues. So you, there's this very rich history in philosophy of, of talking about intellectual virtue. Aristotle uh, describes intellectual virtues as excellences of the thinking part of the soul in the 20th century, you get epistemologists describing uh, intellectual virtues as something like the, the, the faculties or personal qualities that are reliable and get you true beliefs and help you avoid getting false beliefs. And then more recently, you get people talking about intellectual virtues as something like the qualities of a good thinker, the qualities of a good reasoner, and even that is, is pretty ambiguous. So uh, the project that really got me Working on intellectual virtue was a project that I did in the UK with uh, with some some government grant money, and I ended up working on a way of thinking about intellectual virtues that I took to be a little bit different from the standard. Which the the best entry into it is to think about whether there might be uh, sort of ways of being a good thinker, but not a reliable thinker. Hume has a great discussion of pride, where he talks about someone who has a good opinion of themselves and, and sort of is optimistic and, and has a, a sort of very positive view of themselves as being a virtue, as being a, a, a positive characteristic. But it look, that looks very different from what a lot of 20th century epistemologists would call an intellectual virtue because it doesn't look like it has that connection to truth and reliability. Um, so my interest has sort of been in thinking about what sorts of habits of thinking or habits of reasoning or habits of inquiring are good from the perspective of living a good life, good from the perspective of politics, good from the perspective of what kind of uh, social arrangements we want to have and how we want to interact with each other. 
and and that gives you a, a somewhat different picture of intellectual virtue than at least what you get from some of the history of philosophical discussion of that stuff. So if I could just follow up on that a little bit. So the the distinction between a, a good and reliable thinker is really interesting. Uh, so do you mean by that something along the lines of kinds ways of thinking that might help me in practical terms, even though they might say generate false beliefs or not be sort of epistemically reliable in a normal sense? Yeah, that's that certainly seems like one kind of really interesting case where there might be patterns of thought or, or ways of proceeding intellectually that are useful or uh, beneficial in various ways, but not because they're reliable, but for some other reason. There's also, I think, just interesting cases where it's not so much a clash between uh, sort of being a reliable truth seeker and being a good thinker in some other way, but it's just that thinking about uh, intellectual virtue not in terms of reliability, but in terms of what other benefits or values might be promoted by someone's habits of reasoning or, or patterns of inquiry. So like, think about, um, uh, this is a, a kind of example that I think connects up with some of the stuff we were talking about at the workshop. You know, Think about how valuable it is to listen to a lot of people and to engage with a lot of disagreement and uh, sort of listen and carefully and respectfully engage with your political opponents that might not be the best way to get at the truth, right? Because if your political opponents are really far from the truth, it's not obvious what benefit there's going to be. There might be some benefit in terms of truth, but it's not obvious. Whereas the political benefit is super obvious uh, of, of engaging respectfully and carefully and open-mindedly with people who disagree with you. It's not clear that the reason that's a good thing is because it gets you closer to the truth or it gets you knowledge. It looks much more to me like the reason it's good to be open-minded and charitable and fair-minded when you engage with other people is because it's good for democracy, right? Not so much because it's going to get you more true beliefs. Oh, that's that's really interesting. That, that's cool. All right. So we've we've talked about intellectual virtue, but our workshop this fall was on intellectual virtue and populism. So what is interesting to you about populism we could talk in the U.S. here or globally. And if you want to connect that to intellectual virtue, you can. But we're just asking the question, what is interesting to you about populism? I mean, I think like a lot of people, I, I probably became interested in populism because you hear, you know, populism offered as an explanation of what's going on in politics right now, both in the U.S. and and elsewhere. So, I mean, I think you very much hear a familiar kind of explanation of Donald Trump and sort of the rise of Trumpism and the way the Republican Party has changed in various ways as a kind of rise of populism or as a populism is playing a role there. And so that's just interesting because it's like, if if that does explain this current event, it's like an incredibly interesting current event that one wants to understand. I mean, I actually sort of, after talking a bit with some of the people at the workshop, I, I, I came to think that maybe populism isn't actually the best thing to explain what's going on in the U.S. right now. It might be a better, I mean, sort of Kirk Hawkins, who it sounded like you talked to in an earlier episode of the podcast, kind of convinced me that, you know, Trump isn't as populist as people make him out to be. Um, so maybe populism isn't really the right concept to explain American politics right now. I also some have gotten a little bit skeptical of to what extent populism 
and this is sort of what I'm going to try to work on in my in my paper for your volume, a little bit skeptical of the extent to which populism has an intellectual component as opposed to more like an emotional component or a, um, yeah, as opposed to an emotional component. So I'm not sure. I think one p- thing people say is that populism is sort of associated with certain habits of thinking or certain patterns of reason, reasoning or certain ways of inquiring. I guess going back to Richard Hofstadter, the anti-intellectualism in American life kind of idea. But I, I started to see after the workshop and thinking about this a little bit more, I started to see populism as much more a matter of yeah, kind of animating certain kinds of emotional responses, animating certain kinds of allegiances, allegiances to you know the people, to the Volk, less a matter of thinking in a certain way and more a matter of feeling in a certain way. So that's, that's really interesting. So that implies a kind of standard dichotomy between the sort of intellectual virtues or thinking and, and emotion. So would that be correct? Do you see, you know, when we talk about something like intellectual virtues, is that something that's divorced from emotion? Emotion uh, gets in the way of the intellectual component or does it sometimes contribute to? Have you thought much about that? I mean, I think like everything in philosophy, I think that's a hugely controversial question. And I think I asked them. it is... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a there's a, there's people writing on this. The way this gets discussed, in to my knowledge, the way this gets discussed in contemporary literature is, or at least one of the ways this gets discussed in contemporary literature is under the heading of epistemic emotions. People talk about the epistemic emotions, and so one line of argument is that emotions are really important when it comes to being intellectually virtuous, and that an intellectually virtuous person will have various sorts of emotions playing, you know, various roles in their patterns of thinking and patterns of reasoning. So people talk about curiosity as an emotion. People talk about having the motivation to inquire carefully. And these have an affective uh, aspect, which gives emotion a kind of central place in, yeah, in intellectual virtue. So maybe when I, I'm wondering if I was implicitly rejecting that argument and and sort of thinking of intellectual virtue less in emotional terms. I think what I was more thinking, I think I was thinking two related things, which are maybe problematic. One was that there's just this very old um, and maybe like old as in old fashioned, as in not correct and outdated idea of like the intellect is one organ or faculty or part of the mind and the passions are another. And right. so when you sort of talk about intellectual matters, uh, you're talking about one part of the mind. And uh, when you talk about emotion, you're talking about another. And so diagnosing populism, you might want to identify sort of what part of the mind do you think is is central. In contemporary philosophy, I think that dichotomy is is sort of the belief versus non, uh, you know, attitudes other than belief dichotomy. So if you think of intellectual virtues as primarily concerned with how we go about forming beliefs, you might think, yeah, I mean, that doesn't mean that emotions aren't involved. But my thought about populism, I think, was just that populism isn't to be characterized so much in terms of a pattern of belief formation as it is to be characterized in terms of a pattern of emotional or affective response. Yeah, I don't think we should, I hope that doesn't commit one to saying that emotions aren't involved in the intellectual virtues, because it seems like they might very well be. That's certainly a a common view in the literature. 
Right. Yeah. So that, that that's why I was asking. I mean, the, it's interesting when we talk about political phenomenon or just, I mean, cognition in general, this sort of relation of of reason, you know, when we think of reason and emotion and right, as you mentioned, there's a whole literature on that. And I, I think that's something we, you know, have yet to kind of plumb more fully, not only in political, political, you know, thought and, and how intellectual virtues might or might not apply to it, but otherwise. So I have a, a practical question then. So, you know, one of the questions that often comes up with philosophers is what do you do with this stuff? And so, and, and you may, might or might not have thought about this, but with the things like the intellectual virtues, there is this kind of possible practical application. You know, when we start talking about education, education practices, that maybe what we want to do is we want to instill what we might call intellectual virtues, things like curiosity in children or in the K through 12 um, mm-hmm. uh, system. Mm-hmm. So is this something you've thought about at all within the context of, of your work are, are the kinds of intellectual virtues you're looking at, the sorts of things that might have, have practical application in, in education or elsewhere? I mean, I, th- I thought about this a lot. I did some research on this, partly because of that government grant I mentioned. And for a government grant, you've got to at least promise to have some kind of practical application. So I ended up doing a series of workshops in Scotland where we attempted to theorize, bring people together and theorize about this exact idea of educating for intellectual virtue and what that might look like and what sorts of education policy implications there might be of uh, an epistemology that, that theorizes in, in terms of virtue. I mean, that's certainly been on the mind of quite a few virtue epistemologists I think one thing you you will get virtue epistemologists saying that they're very much in favor of of a kind of character or skill based approach in education as opposed to not sure anyone really is into this but as opposed to the sort of learn your facts you know acquire a bunch of knowledge model of education where there's been a shift over many decades I think to thinking about primary and secondary education more in terms of skill and character development as opposed to sort of the acquisition of lots of propositional knowledge. Jason Baer is a virtue epistemologist who actually started up a charter school based on a sort of virtue epistemology as sort of one of the guiding educational principles for the school. So it's meant to be a sort of virtue-based uh, education out in, it's out in um, Long Beach, I believe. And he sent his own kids there. So he was willing to sort of put his epistemology uh, <laughs> to the test with his own, with his own flesh and blood. So yeah, I, I thought a lot about that. And certainly, I mean, I think in some ways where I, where I ended up getting stuck was not really knowing, it seems like a, just a highly empirical question, whether you can uh, inculcate intellectual virtue Uh, make people more curious or open-minded or intellectually careful? And then if you can, how how do you do it? It's just a highly empirical psychological question. And I don't have a lot of training (laughs) to to sort of even, even begin to try to, to try to answer it. Um, I also, I think at a theoretical level, you know, one of the interesting debates in virtue theory more broadly, virtue ethics, virtue epistemology is to what extent are virtues acquired? um, And if they are acquired, to what extent how is that done? You know, how are they acquired? That's a question that, you know, sort of from the very beginning in Plato's Mino, you get that that question being being raised. And 
I'm definitely more open than a lot of virtue theorists in philosophy to the possibility that virtues are not acquired or taught, but some people just have them. Some people are good people. Some people are bad people. It's an unpopular view, but I'm not sure why we should expect it to be otherwise. Like lots of things are like that. Um, so I'm, I, I think I'm much more open than some of, you know, some of the other people in virtue epistemology to the possibility that there's not really, there might not be any hope for virtue education because you're born that way. That's slightly pessimistic view, but that seems like a possibility. There might be some things where education just isn't the way that one, one, one acquires the virtue. It also might be that you acquire virtues in some way other than by education. So maybe you acquire them by inheriting them from a community. It's more of a family matter than a, a matter for formal education. So there's just all these, there's all these other options. So you've heard it here first. Uh, Alan Hazlitt and Lady Gaga are saying <laughs> we are born this way. I was just listening to that because my, uh, my, my four-month-old said Gaga, and so I thought, well, that's a request. So we were, we were <laughs> put it up on Spotify. There you go. Okay, so thank you so much, Alan. And with that, let's transition to our last question. And so this season, we've been doing something we call the quirky question, and we kind of have a special question for each guest that's a little fun and get a little insight into who you are. And our question for you is, so you've alluded to this, but according to your website, you lived in Chicago, as I have. Scotland, Texas, as I have also, actually, and New Mexico. And of course, now you're in St. Louis. If you could go back to one of these places, which one would it be? Yeah, I think it, it, it would it would be New Mexico because it is New Mexico, which is the only place that I've lived that I sort of regularly go back to, not for work, but just to go back there. And it's partly to visit people, but it's mainly because of the food there, which is the best food anywhere, uh, I think, in my view, and also very a, a food that's very hard to find outside of there. So you have different kinds of chili sauces, you have enchiladas, you have tamales, you have uh, a whole range of food. And it's, 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 it's like a vastly superior to Tex-Mex. It's not Mexican food. It's not Tex-Mex. It's new Mexican food. It's its own thing. And so I'll just go back there with the family and just eat three or four meals and then just you know fly back to St. Louis. So we, we, we go back occasionally for that kind of thing. So yeah, I would go back and I do go back. Um, All right. So you are practicing what you preach there. Absolutely. Uh, and that's, that is a ringing endorsement for New Mexico food. Before we uh, wrap up here, is there anything you want to share about current projects you're working on or maybe share ways that our listeners can contact you? I mean, I would love people love for people to contact me. Take a look at my website. You can look at I have a whole a list of all the the works in progress, things that I'm working on right now, and I, I you know happy to email with people if they have questions about that stuff. Sometimes there are drafts of papers that people can look at if people want to talk about those or give me feedback on those. That's always really useful. Yeah, I mentioned those two book projects, and those are the two sort of things that are the the big picture things. The the one project has to do with desire and the. The premise of the project is that you can think of desire as a representational state and therefore do epistemology about it. So you can talk about whether a desire is justified or not. You can talk about whether a desire amounts to knowledge or not. And the other project is about authenticity, and it sort of builds on some work that I've done with a good friend of mine, Simon Feldman, out of Connecticut College. 
I'm going to try to write up something about that. I have a, I have a fellowship leave at the Humanities Center here coming up next fall, and I'm supposed to write this book for that. So that'll that'll have to happen, um, or the Humanities Center will have my head. But yeah, I'll t- <laughs> I'm going to try to figure out whether Trump is authentic. This is the the big question. <laughs> Great. Uh, those those sound like really interesting projects, and and personally, I. I would love to take a look at those. But with that, we thank you for being here. And that is it for the Ethics Lab podcast. If you would like to follow us on Facebook, you can do so at South Dakota State University Ethics Lab altogether. Or you can follow us on Twitter at SDSU Ethics Lab. So thanks again, Alan. And until next time, be virtuous, be ethical, and listen to our podcast. Thanks a lot.